right, let's read verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and... Uh, God, we pray that as we study it this morning, as we think about your kingship, your reign and dominion, Lord, that you would give us insight in how we could respond and live in light of your ongoing rule. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1979, the year of my birth, going ahead and showing my age there, uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song that may help us get started thinking about our text and topic this morning. Uh, and here are some of the lyrics. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. The rest of the song goes on like that with all kinds of categories and just brings it back to that chorus and refrain. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The song is about the fact that our entire lives are lived in some ways under the authority of people that rule over us and have dominion over us. And that these exercises of authority really get at the core challenge we face in life of whether we will serve the rule of God or be dominated by the rule and reign of those who knowingly or unknowingly serve the purposes of a counterfeit kingdom under Satan who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. 
There's a main idea I want you to see in this passage, and I just want to, it'll be up on the screen, and I'll talk about it in a moment, but I want to highlight, I'm not going to do what I normally do on Sundays uh, when we're in standard series and entirely pick apart this passage. We've been thinking through three categories in a sermon series on Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. And today, I want to talk about what does it mean that Christ has dominion? What does it mean that Jesus is king? And partly it means that you're going to have to serve somebody. And the main idea I want you to see from this text, maybe you've never seen this text in the way that you will today, is that Jesus is the king that has come to establish God's eternal reign and bring us into his peace. That Jesus, in fact, has a kingship, even if you don't recognize it. That Jesus has a dominion, a rule, an authority of God that he is exercising in the world that he invites you to recognize and align your life with, but, but that this is a very rule and important reign that you cannot ignore because you will either serve that dominion or one that will destroy you and bring you into bondage. Well, I've made a claim that this passage is about kingship, that this is the main idea. And in some manner, I want to show you why very quickly so that we can get on to seeing what it means for our lives. But maybe when you were reading these verses, 1 through 14, you've heard this Christmas story. Maybe you've not thought much about kingship and dominion. But, but I want to point out a couple things uh, in relation to that main idea and main theme that I want to see in this passage. So, so here's how we see this idea of kingship in the verses that we just read. We see it first through the biblical theme of dominion. Maybe you've never noticed, but this passage brings together a major theme about kingship, or another term the Bible often uses for kingship, which is dominion or rule, reign. Dominion is about the extent of someone's rule or ability to exercise authority. We see in the passage that the setting is about rule and dominion. Caesar is ruling over the people, over the world, and by command, by just a spoken word, a decree, he is able to move peoples from place to place. He's exercising dominion. So the passage starts with a census that was used to exercise authority, given by the greatest dominion in the known world at the time. And it was a way of saying, just how far does my dominion reach? That's what a census did. And Luke sets the story of Jesus' birth in the identification of God's king, the king we need, in this story about dominion and Caesar's decree. So that's the background theme that's going on as we're introduced to Jesus. Then we see, we see this idea of kingship and dominion another way. We see it through the many references in the passage to King David. The census takes Mary, who is carrying Jesus, up to Bethlehem. Now, if you, know, if you have a, a decent grasp and understanding of the Bible, Bethlehem is a special place. It's where Israel's, da- Israel's greatest king was found. And he was found in a way in which he was overlooked and unnoticed. He was found in Bethlehem. He was a shepherd, youngest son, out in the field, not even chosen to be checked on, when they came looking for who would be anointed as God's chosen king. So what we see going on in the passage, we see that he's brought up to Bethlehem, the town where it says David was identified as the unexpected king. uh, The passage here that we've read identifies that that he is of the house and lineage of David. Every time you see David, you should think king, because that's his identity. 
It calls Bethlehem the city of David. He's found among the sheep in the stable to point us to this illusion about David's life. And the shepherds, which David was a shepherd by trade, are given the first announcement. They're again told to go down to David's town where this Savior or Deliverer has been born and there to bear witness to it. All of this matters. Uh, all of this whole situation is because David was Israel's greatest king and God had made him, God himself had made a promise to David that he would establish David's throne, his rule, his dominion in a way that would be ongoing. It was a promise that David was a king that represented a greater purpose of God. That God would bring his dominion and rule, the promised Savior, the one who could really bring us into right relationship with God through David. And by that, the way he kind of pictured it is through some common imagery, the imagery of a dynasty. He sort of, what he says to David is he, uh, he says, David, I know you want to build me a temple. This is an Old Testament story. But, but uh, instead of you building me a house, he plays on the words. He says, I'm going to build you a house, a namesake, a lineage, a dynasty. And there's one that will sit on your throne that will be an everlasting king. And so here, the backdrop to Jesus raises the question, not only what extent does this dominion stretch to, but how long will it last? You see, the greatest kingship would be the greatest extension of dominion by place and the greatest length of dominion by time. And we are reminded in this story that that promise of Jesus is the backdrop that we are looking at here. So I just wanted to show you that the major ideas about this passage that you may have missed in just reading it over the years is that it presents Jesus as a king whose rule brings the peace that we really need. And, and so because of that, we're thinking about Jesus as king today, and we're thinking about it in the context of this common Christmas story that we have seen. Now, what does this passage show us about Jesus the king? If Jesus is the king and he's being presented here as having a particular dominion and rule that matters for your life, what does this passage show us about that? Well, the first thing that we see is in verses 1 through 7, a really powerful image. It's that that he rules over any dominion that dominates us. He rules over every dominion that threatens us. Here we're, we're really to see the dominion of Roman rule as a threat to the ability for the people of God to live out their calling faithfully. Jesus rules over every dominion that threatens us. Let me, to be able to see that, again, we can't, you know, what's really hard about some of the Christmas stories, I find this really difficult this time of year preaching, you know, we come in in kind of a celebratory mode, but to really understand the passages where Jesus is presented to us, we actually have to do some digging, we have to understand the Old Testament, they're like chock full of, of illusions and imagery that, that when you bring them together, they feel really significant, but if you're not aware of them, they kind of feel like, okay, Jesus is a king. I don't really believe in kings, you know. I'm American, I'm not British. I mean, I know some of y'all get all excited about the royal stuff, but, like, come on, we don't believe in that stuff anymore, right? People who are divinely despotic rulers. 
And so we're pretty removed from this whole idea of king. We hear Jesus is king, and we don't really think about authority and dominion and power and what that can mean and, and, and what, what a king really does. But this idea of dominion, of God's rule, the extent to which he is able to bring about everything that he has intended and promises is a major theme in the Bible. It's basically this, the, the whole Bible is a story of Satan undermining, undermining the rule and dominion of God and bringing us in the blind, into the blindness through sin to be able to serve his kingdom and dominion. From the very get-go, this is what's going on. It's a story about dominion. Adam was created to live under the dominion of God and then to exercise that dominion in the world that God had created. Uh, I'm not just making this up. You can see it. Genesis chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, We see that it says in Genesis chapter 1 that God uh, blessed them when he created man and woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the beginning, God intended for, uh, under him for mankind to, in, in a sense, to rule over creation, not be ruled by creation, not be in bondage and dominated, but to, in, in, to exercise a sort of authority as we stayed under the rule of God. In order to exercise that authority, Adam and Eve were given instruction by God to live under his dominion as his agents in creation. And so the story of them falling into sin is them being tempted to find out that to to be said no 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 you're actually under a false bad bondage under God your real freedom would be to leave that and rule over yourself and so they they step out from under God's dominion into their own freedom but that freedom what we find out is every time we step out of God's God's rule and reign we think we're gaining freedom but we're really bringing ourselves into bondage You see, if you've never understood what sin does, is sin promises freedom but brings us into bondage. We think we're becoming rulers. We're exercising dominion outside of God's rule and reign. And it brings us into bondage. Apart from God, they didn't gain freedom. We see they came into the bondage of sin. Outside of God's rule and reign, they were subject to the powerful effects of sin. You know, as, as they have children, we see it just gets worse. Cain kills Abel. They're, they're, he's, he's so powerfully driven by this inner bondage to his own desires and appetites that he destroys life. The rest, of, the rest of Genesis is really to show that this, this bondage or dominion steals, kills, and destroys. And, and to show that even in that God intends to continue to exercise his rule and reign by offering grace. And so the book of Genesis is about exposing the ugliness of sin while also showing us that God has a plan and purpose to redeem and show grace to his people. But both of those images the ugliness of sin, and God's rule and reign are on full display. 
We learn quickly in the Old Testament that if you will not have God's dominion, you'll be under the bondage of a cruel sort of rule in a world where sin has been unleashed. It's not just the problem that now we come into inner bondage, but that because we're in wrong relationship with one another, that, that, that authority becomes twisted from something that would serve people and cause creation to, a flourish, to flourish. That authority is now used to dominate around a dominion that isn't God's. Well, we see that. Consider a different sin, a scene in the Old Testament. Through God's promise, then, he's gathered a people under the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he promises to bless, to make fruitful, to bring blessing back to the nations. But sin so dominates their lives that they sell their brother off into the dominion of Egypt and servitude there. They sell Joseph. Remember that story? Sell Joseph into slavery into bondage, into a different dominion than God's promised dominion. But sin so dominates their lives that after doing that, we see them, we, we say them respond. They become enslaved to their own sin and secrets. We find out they never tell their father the truth about what happened to his son. They're willing to destroy him. And so you see sin stealing and killing and destroying as they exercise their own power and authority outside of God's intended plan and purpose. And so what happens? They become enslaved to this, this story. Their father is all but given up. And while they're sinning, calamity in the world strikes, a famine that threatens their entire existence and this promise of grace that God has given. But here is where we get the first glimpse of whether God has lost control or dominion. And we get to the heart of a question I think everyone here should be asking about God's rule, God's kingship, and God's reign. Here we, 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 we get to the heart of the question of whether God is still ruling. So, so when, when Joseph has been sold into slavery and the famine is coming and the brothers are back in their homeland where they've forsaken the promise of God, is God still ruling and keeping his promise? And the answer is he's raising up from the, from the lowly place of servitude a king that will rescue them. Joseph is brought to this powerful dominion. <laughs> the one who was rejected by his own people is now ruling and actually rescues them by grace from what they really deserved through their sin. And it tells us an important thing about God, that God hasn't lost control. By the end of the book of Genesis, God hasn't lost control. Although they've sold themselves and been enslaved on some level to the dominion of Satan's undermining and the way it's represented through false authority and kings and their own bondage to their own wickedness, God in his grace is still reigning and has a plan and purpose. The theme of dominion shows that without God's rule over the world, sin would dominate and destroy all that is good, and we would be under the bondage of cruel and destructive authority. Now, we could keep telling this story. Sinful decisions lead to terrible consequences where Israel is in bondage, and the question is, is God still reigning? The same question you should ask in your life. Is God still reigning? Well, he was in Egypt with Joseph, 
Later, after Israel is established in their own land, they're given the opportunity to be free and live under God's rule. So if you fast forward, God rescues them out of a greater bondage under Pharaoh, one in which they have been so enslaved and dehumanized that they don't reflect God's image. They're not free to worship God as they would desire. They're not able to engage the calling that God has given them, and so they're longing for freedom. And God delivers them. He brings them out. He sends them into the land. And it makes us go, okay, now that they're free and they can go into the land, surely under under their own rule, under themselves, they can be free. No longer a false authority breaking them down and doing that. I'm sure that they'll live under God's dominion. So once God brings the people of Israel into their own land, you would think now as God's people with freedom, they would flourish under the rule of God's king. But the story of Israel's kings is a dark story. It's that they refuse to exercise their dominion under God's rule. Now, God always intended Israel to have a king. It's just the first king they chose, Saul, was one like the world not one like God had told them he would give them. And so they ask before God gives. But, but you know, in Deuteronomy 17, actually God told them how their king should exercise authority different than the dominion that they saw around them. Deuteronomy 17, it's up on the screen. It's probably like microfiche. You might not be able to read it, but you can get there in your Bibles. I just wanted to prove to you it exists. But I want to point out, long before, God God actually told the people of Israel what their king should be like. He said some simple things. The king should be one born from among them who God has chosen, foreshadowing Jesus' birth among mankind to be their true king. The king should not consolidate wealth, horses, or multiplied numbers of wives to establish power and authority. They weren't to gather to themselves so that they could be, be powerful in and of themselves They were to trust God's genuine authority and be servants who dispersed that kind of authority, not solidified their power. The kings of the world, Jesus says, they lord it over the people and consolidate their power. But Jesus said, those who would be great in my kingdom will be different. He's talking about this passage. We also see in that passage that the king should write his own copy of God's law, read it daily, and never stray from it because their authority was derived authority. It was under the rule and reign of God. Therefore, they could exercise no authority, no goodness that would go outside the very specific instructions. Like Adam in the garden, the the instructions were there to keep them under God's rule. And then lastly, he should not exalt himself. Well, the story of Israel's kings is a story of refusing to live under God's dominion and therefore leading the people into all sorts of bondage and sin. So much so that they're conquered by the world around them over and over again and carried eventually into exile. And so if we fast forward after the failure of Israel's kings, even King David, the great king who foreshadows Jesus, he fails at Deuteronomy 17. We see at the end of his life, he has a census. He gathers up and he consolidates his power just like Caesar. He looks like the other kings. He denies God's word. So what happens? 
failing to live under God's rule and dominion in their own freedom, Israel is exiled from their land. And they find themselves under a different dominion, a different rule, the rule of Babylon. And it asks the question, is God still reigning there? Is God able to reign where there is this ungodly king exercising dominion? I mean, the, the book of Daniel is all about dominion. Daniel, the young man, is raised up in the king's house. And through him, a message is delivered to the, to the great authority of Nebuchadnezzar to say, your kingdom's going to come and go. There's one coming right behind it. That kingdom's going to come and go. There's one coming right behind that. And there's a kingdom after that. That, that's, that one's going to come and go. And, and they picture this big rock that comes down and destroys this, these images of the kingdom that will destroy it. And it will grow into a holy mountain. And it's the picture of God's kingdom. The coming of Jesus will come in due time and will overwhelm all authority and all rule. And no authority will be victorious that isn't from God. Ultimately, they will all come to, end, to an end. It, it, all of this is to prepare us to answer the question, is God reigning even still there? He puts Daniel in the house. He preserves the people through Esther under a foreign king. He preserves his people. He's always exercising authority in the background in ways that people maybe didn't notice, but by his grace, preserving the promise of sending a true king. So here at the coming of Christ, in the passage that we've been reading, we see a king, Caesar, displaying the extent of his dominion. It reaches even into the lives of Joseph and Mary who are moved around by the census. Notice the census is contrary to the picture of a king mentioned in Deuteronomy. It's a twisted use of authority where power is measured and displayed by the king instead of authority used to bless people. It causes hardship, this particular type of census, under its service. Like Joseph and Mary have to travel at an inopportune time. It raises the question, is God's dominion still at work, or are we just under the rule of these Romans permanently? Well, here we see God's rule. God uses the false dominion of the world to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. The place he had promised his Messiah would be born. The place of the promised king, the house of David. God is orchestrating everything to fulfill his promise in his time, in his way. The king being born is God's king with a promised dominion that will be greater and last longer than Caesar's. And God is using Caesar's sense of power to accomplish his own purpose. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is God's king. Now, you may be thinking, like many of the Israelites, why not throw off this Caesar and the Romans and establish the true king right now? Well, our little story through the Old Testament can answer a really practical question for us like that. Getting rid of the Romans will not solve the problem that sin has created, that we refuse by sin to live under the rule and reign of God. So guess what? There's always a king that can replace the next king. There's always a dominion that will set itself up against God. But the primary question is, in that kingdom or this one or any that you find yourself in, will you live under the rule and reign of Christ whose dominion will be forever long after they are gone? And we would think it's an easy answer, like, sure. 
Absolutely. I would love to be free and under God's reign. Not so fast. We don't just need God to rule over the nations. We don't need to just see that God can rule over creation, which he does. But there's a more important question. Can he bring us back under his rule? Can he bring me as an individual with all of my sin and temptation back under his rule and deliver me a salvation that can really be eternal? Well, in verses 8 through 14, that's actually what we see. What we see there is that he can bring us back under the dominion of God. This king that has come, this baby that has been born, right now he is, he is humble and low in a manger. There's no place for him in the inn, it says. He, he, he doesn't look like he has authority. He doesn't, he, he's, he, he's not like the other kings in his entry, in his birth. But God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart and he performs his dominion differently through this humble king. Now, how do we see that in verses 8 through 14? If 1 through 7 shows us that God is ruling over Caesar, he's fulfilling his purpose, how do we see that he can bring us under his dominion in verses 8 through 14? Well, it's, here's what I want you to understand. You've maybe never looked at this passage properly. But verses 8 through 14, which is often read as this peaceful, wonderful Christmas Story is an invasion scene. It's an invasion scene. Have you ever noticed this focus? We see it in the wrong way when we read it at Christmas time. The, the scene is arranged to not just show us that this is a more powerful king than Caesar, but to show us this is God's king who invites us to peace under God's reign. How do we see that? Well, I've got a couple of ways I want to point it out. First, we see it as the angel announces a Savior born in the city of David. Verses 10 and 11, if you look at it, the word Savior here represents what is often termed a deliverer in the Old Testament. The people in the book of Judges needed a deliverer. Same word that's being translated. When Goliath and the Philistines were threatening Israel, they needed a deliverer over their great enemy, and David became that de deliverer, and they experienced his victory. The angel here announces good news that a savior, a deliverer, has come. Did we need a deliverer? Well, the clear answer is yes. God has always been reigning and trustworthy. No matter the political powers that come and go, but the problem has been where we ourselves have found our allegiance. We have needed to be delivered from one kingdom into another. And I just want to say to you really plainly, if you have not come to a place in your life where you have submitted yourself to the rule and reign of Christ by faith, you are living under a dominion that you don't want to acknowledge. You have been tempted by Satan and everything that sets itself against God to think that you are free, but you are living under a dominion. You are serving somebody. You are serving some purpose to some end, and it's probably not even all your own. You don't have as much control over your life as you think that you have over your life. You are living under a dominion. It's just not God's. And if you're honest, you 
recognize even in your own soul, you've surrendered parts of yourself to a false and wicked dominion that continues to yield bad fruit. And you know, some of you, you've tried to, to quit the things that you know are contrary to God and found you're in bondage. You're enslaved. You can't even live your best life your own aspirations, let, let alone God's. You've surrendered yourself to a dominion. We've needed to be delivered from one kingdom into another. And through the coming of Jesus and what he has done, we can be delivered. He's a deliverer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we find out in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, that he, what Jesus does through his work and his life and his rule and his reign, is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Becoming a Christian at its very core, is being willing to acknowledge that through sin we have lived under the dominion of a, a dominion that is against God. We have set ourselves as enemies against God's purposes, against his design, against his rule, against his instruction, and we're in bondage to it. But what Jesus does is he invites us to let him destroy our enemies. The enemy within sin, to put it to death, to cause it to be separated from us, for us to begin to come under his rule and be retrained in a new kingdom. But we have to come and trust him to be able to do that. We have to be willing to turn from our sin and our dominion and our sense of control and say, Lord, I want to turn from that and I want to entrust myself to Jesus. I entrust him as a faithful king who will serve me, who will set me free from the dominion of darkness and transfer me into a relationship with God. He is the deliverer. And so we see Paul in Colossians 1 say, this is what salvation is. It's, it's not me getting my life better and proving that I can live under the dominion of God, but coming to the king, Jesus, and saying, Jesus, I surrender. I don't want to be an enemy. I want to entrust myself to you. I need a new citizenship. I don't want to rule over my life. I want your kingdom, your rule and reign. So we see it in this announcement from, of a savior, a deliverer. Second, we see that the peace we need is with God. We see that Jesus is this king. He can bring us under the dominion of God. And we see what we really need, actually, is we need to be reconciled to God. We actually need to be brought back into a right relationship with God and his rule and his reign. But right now, we stand as enemies. You see, in this battle scene, we have an angel that comes and announces there's a deliverer that is coming. He is going to rescue those who are waiting on him, and he is going to bring judgment against his enemies that are fighting against him. It's a very simple scene, and maybe you think that's too simplistic, but this is what Jesus says, this is what's happening in this passage. Let's set the scene that the shepherds see here. There's a messenger from God who has come to the city of man to announce in enemy territory that there is a true king entering. 
You know, th this picture of this messenger is an angel. Notice how they respond. They don't say, oh, what a cute winged baby. They're terrified because he's a warrior. Angels in the scriptures are warriors. He's coming to enemy territory to say, now is the time for you to surrender and find peace with the king who has come to establish his reign. You notice the term heavenly hosts in verse 13. As he's doing that, it says that he's filled and surrounded by, he's surrounded by a heavenly host of angelic beings. And we see that and we immediately think, oh, this angel has a choir. This isn't a choir. This is an army. They're not singing, by the way. If you read through the passage, I just want to point it out. They're not singing. They're proclaiming something. They're gathered with a declaration, a shout of power, glory to God in the highest. In that context, it would be not glory to Rome, not glory to any other earthly kingdom. There is no reign but God's reign, and his reign is in the highest place of the highest kind. They're like an army at the gates of the world, and they're there to proclaim something. Now, here's the good news. They're there to proclaim peace with those among whom God is pleased. So, so we see this invitation, this baby, this king who is entering is, is going to exercise God's rule and reign. He has all authority of heaven, all the power available to him. And right now, he has come for one thing and one thing only as an act of God's grace to offer peace to all people. You see, it would be common these times for a king to do this sort of thing. He's playing on the imagery of the king to say, hey, we're coming to rule and we will put down our enemies. But before then, those of goodwill who are willing to surrender can come and they can make peace with the king. And he's playing on that imagery to say, this is exactly what God offers us in Jesus. This king who is coming, before he will come in judgment, he is coming to make peace with you. Because as those who have lived outside of the authority and rule of God under the dominion of darkness, we have an invitation to leave that dominion and receive peace with God through Jesus Christ, the true king. Jesus has come as a king to bring the kindly rule of God back to those who are willing to leave their status as enemies with God and come under his dominion of peace. But I, I want you to notice it says peace with those among whom God is, is pleased. It should make you stop and ask a critical question. If God's king is here to exercise God's rule, is God pleased with me? Is he pleased with me? Well, I think if we get honest and look at our lives, if we've set ourselves against 
God, if we've been living under our own rule, you may just think, I'm just living for myself. What does God care? Listen, there's, there's only two dominions. Those who are under the rightful rule of God and those who are living against him. And so you may think you're just living in freedom, but God sees it as rejecting every good thing he's provided for you and living as an enemy. And when he comes, we'll be counted as those with whom he's not pleased. But see, this is the amazing thing about Jesus. He, he didn't come to execute judgment. He even says that he came to make peace, to offer peace. And how does he do that? Well, the only time we see Jesus wears a, wearing a crown is when there's a crown of thorns pressed on his head and he goes to the cross. It's the sign of his contrary kingship against all other rule and reign. This is a king who is a servant. This is a king who would rather lay down his life so that you could be at peace with God than to rule in judgment over his enemies. This is a king that has come to make his enemies into his children, to bring his enemies into his citizenship. And he's willing to lay down his own life and wear a crown of our failures, of our sin, and pay for our sins on the cross so that you can know that you have peace with God. Because listen, God isn't pleased with any of us in our own record. When you read that, every year when I hear this part of it, I go, man, there's something like a tension of like, I don't know, is God pleased? Who's God pleased with? God is pleased with his son, his righteous son, the true king who is the only one who has lived a perfect and sinless life. His only pleasure is in him and those who are willing to make peace with God through him. We, we know this because in Romans we're told that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be declared righteous and in a right standing with God, not on our own, in our own record, but because Jesus is our peace. He himself establishes the peace in which we go from enemy combatant to friend of God. And so if you've never understood what it means to be a Christian, it's to recognize that for all the time that you've lived outside of God's rule and reign, you've lived for your own freedom, your own purposes, you have been an enemy against God's purposes in the world, but God has not come in the person of Jesus to destroy you, to judge you, and to cast you off. He has come to invite you to peace now so that when he judges the world and he makes all things right and all things new and brings his justice, those of us who have have, have made our peace with God through Jesus Christ, can experience his redemption and joy and life. And now is the day for you to make peace with God. By simply saying, Lord, I don't want to live for my own dominion, but entrust myself to Christ. If you want to be at peace with God and enjoy his reign, both now and forever, you will only get it through making peace with his king through the cross. Jesus is the only pe person on earth who has pleased God through his sinless life and sacrificial love on our behalf. Through his death, he paid for our sin. He established the offer of peace in his kingdom. The coming of Jesus is good news of great joy for you, if and only if you make peace with the king's offer 
and entrust yourself by faith to his dominion and rule over your life. No matter what you have done, what you have given your allegiance to in the past, this day and every day until Christ's return, he offers you peace if you will recognize you're walking in the dominion of darkness and trust what he did on the cross as the payment for your sin and come under his rule and reign by faith. He'll conquer every foe. And he promises us that he will bring his reign into our life and through our life. So how do we live with Jesus as our king as we close our time? We think about gathering around the Lord's table. Practically speaking, I think one of the things when we think of Jesus as the king and what we've seen from God's word today is you need to remember Jesus is reigning. You know, God can and will preserve his people until all his promises of a new creation are brought to completion. And, and, and you know, just like in the Old Testament at times where it looks like, is God reigning? People are experiencing the pain and the difficulty of sin, the sorrows of living in a broken world. But the question is, is, is Jesus reigning? Is he reigning in that hard thing that you're facing right now? Is there... Is there a future that you can count on where you experience God's grace? Is there hope for you in the situation? You are never without hope because in Christ, Jesus is reigning and bringing us on to victory even through the times of darkness and failure where we feel like we're losing and, and there's a dominion that's ruling over us. It's, it's, it's not true. God in his grace is reigning above everything. It's especially important because like we saw in the Old Testament stories today, there are many times where we are given the opportunity to see just how awful it is to live under the tyranny of sin and bondage and to declare to people that God has come to give them peace. So remember Jesus is reigning. The other thing is remember we have a hope to present to people. Listen, there's something about the clarity of kingdom language that says you're either in a kingdom of darkness or a kingdom under the rule and reign of God that that reminds us that people need to examine themselves in relation to God because, because it's not just about having a religious smorgasbord to see what helps your life. There is a king who is coming, who has offered peace, and now is the opportunity for us to receive grace and mercy at the hand of God because of what Jesus has accomplished. And, and it is an act of love for us to proclaim that good news to the people in our community, in our life, and remind them that God wants to draw them into his good rule and reign for all eternity and pour out his grace on their life if they will make peace with him through Jesus Christ. It's honestly incredibly simple. An offer of peace. As we get ready to gather around the Lord's table, I want to encourage you to think about the areas of your life where maybe even if you're a Christian who is a citizen of God's kingdom under his rule and reign, you would look and see the leftover effects of living outside of God's reign and his rule, where you have, aren't letting him have dominion over your life. And as we prepare to recognize him as king at the Lord's table, hosting the feast, 
we want to be reminded to examine ourselves. To rejoice that we can be renewed by coming under his rule and reign. Jesus is a king. He came to offer peace. He was born the prince of peace. But he is also a king with all authority. He was coming to rule and reign over the living and the dead. And right now he offers us grace. So let's come to his throne. Receive it and walk as citizens of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the cross where you showed us your abundant peace and offered us forgiveness and mercy. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who has not made peace with you. Lord, that even now they would turn from their sin and entrust themselves to you. God, we pray that your spirit would be working and giving life. God, in the areas of our lives where we have not submitted ourselves to your instruction and rule and reign and thought that there was freedom, Lord, help us not to return to bondage and give ourselves over to the rule of darkness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.